We're in our sermon series on the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, and in the beginning of chapter 2, a passage we're taking a few weeks to look at, Paul is setting up a before and after picture. This is who you were, he says to the Ephesians, but God. Those are gospel words. This is who God has made you to be. It's even more than an extreme makeover because the text tells us it's nothing less than the dead being raised. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Reading the first seven verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, this word that we've had the privilege of wading through is so rich with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We pray again that the same spirit that inspired the apostle to write these letters to these churches, that that same spirit would be at work in and among us this morning, opening the eyes of our hearts that we might see, that we might know, that we might taste that power that you provide to all who believe that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Let resurrection power be present now because you have promised it, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, we looked at the reality of sin. We called it bad news. And the only question about bad news is whether we live in denial of it or whether we accept it as truth. The reality of sin is that Everything wrong with our lives and everything wrong with our world is rooted in sin. Then we looked at the nature of sin, influenced by three things. The world, which is the culture all around us, it's the air that we breathe. The devil, who accuses and lies. And then the flesh, which is really our sinful nature, not necessarily our physical being, but our sinful nature. That's where I'll pick up this morning first with inordinate desire. Look at verse 3. Paul says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. When you read a phrase like that, if you're like me, you, you might get the sense, the wrong impression, that Paul's talking about really naughty people, people who, who really need Jesus. They're, they're, they're far gone 
They're immoral. They're out-of-control hedonists who gorge themselves on food and drink, sex and alcohol and drugs. But remember, Paul is writing this letter to all of these ordinary Christians in the church at Ephesus saying, you were like this at one time, but God. These are ordinary people. The key word in verse 3 is cravings. What it's describing there is inordinate desire. Inordinate desire. That is out of proportion desire for things that are good, but things we treat as ultimate. We make good things into God things when they've never been designed to receive that kind of praise. It's desire that doesn't line up with the object. It's desire that in God's perfect creational design was never intended. Only God as creator deserves worship. So when we treat what's created, people and things, with similar or greater worship, that's where that word comes from, that turns the created order upside down and everything falls apart. There's a disintegration to the world when we worship something created rather than the creator. Take food, for example. Food is a good gift that God's given to us for survival. But when you over-desire, you gain unhealthy weight, which can lead to disease. Over-desire gives food more attention than it deserves. I think we all know at least a glimpse of, of what that involves. It's not what God intended. Take sex, for example, a gift from God to a husband and a wife. But over-desire, out-of-proportion, inordinate desire, and we call that lust, that's another way to translate these cravings, the word behind cravings, that lets fire jump out of the fireplace. It's something that is appropriately burning with a God-given passion, now becomes destructive. Whether that's porn or adultery, it's destructive to relationships, to your soul. Take excellence in your field of work, for example. That honors God as a good thing, but too easily the good thing becomes a God thing when you think these thoughts, I have to climb that ladder, I need to get that position in order to be happy, in order to be someone, in order to feel fulfilled. And when you don't get that promotion, when you don't get into that program, you're devastated. Why? because you have far stronger desire than the good thing deserves. It's inordinate, out of proportion. This also affects our religious lives. We might think that uh, our lives before the, the Lord are, are sort of immune to this tendency, but it still applies. What, if we ask ourselves, what's the good thing that we treat as an ultimate thing? Maybe it's being recognized as a formal leader. Maybe it's having people pat you on the back and compliment you for your Bible knowledge or for your generosity, for your kindness, for how you are such a loving Christian and the model for everyone else to emulate. When you do the right things before God, you're flying high, feeling His approval, 
But when you screw up, when you falter in these good things, you're weighed down with guilt and shame. You suffer from self-condemnation. Why did I do that? Something designed by God and blessed, doing good, has become ultimate. We might even say it's become a self-salvation strategy to earn the favor of God. And the most accurate indicator of self-reliance is prayerlessness. That should hit all of us squarely in the heart because if you are doing just fine managing life, why pray in dependence upon an almighty God? More diagnostic questions we might ask. What drives you? What preoccupies your thoughts when you wake up in the morning? Do you have anxiety about losing something that you have or never attaining something you don't have? Does that make you anxious? That's the craving of your flesh, your desire for something that in and of itself is a good thing, but you've made it into a God thing. You've made it ultimate. You see why I've gone back to verse 3, even though we treated it last week? Because unless you see that your problem is not that you need some treatment to get you back on track, unless you see that you don't just need a tweak or a tune-up or a spiritual battery recharge in order to get right with God, unless you understand that something is wrong at the root of your being, your very nature that powerfully deserves things other than God Himself and all of His promises, you won't desperately crave the power of God that promises to make you new, to make you alive, verse 5, through faith in the risen King Jesus. We have to constantly come back to the reality and nature of sin, to face it squarely in the mirror and to not shy away from its ugliness. And then we flee to the cross. Secondly, rebirth with. Every now and then someone asks me what I think of born-again Christians and whether I use that term. And there's a simple answer and there's a more involved answer. The simple answer is, is this, there is no other kind of follower of Jesus other than a born-again follower of Jesus, because if you're dead in sin and then you're made alive with Christ, verse 5, then you're reborn. That's salvation. That's the theological term for that is regeneration, literally rebirth. This is what Jesus says to Nicodemus the Pharisee in John chapter 3, unless you are, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. There's no other way. There's no other kind of Christian other than one who is born again. So many people think that being a Christian means trying your best to live according to the teachings of Jesus. That, that sounds very noble, but that's not biblical Christianity. In fact, that is a deadly distortion that masquerades as something noble like Christianity. Why do I say that? That it's not Christianity trying your best to live according to the teachings of Jesus because dead people can't undead themselves. That's your problem. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that you've been made alive. You haven't just gotten this help from Jesus to try harder to live when you're dead. 
That's not what Christianity is, a little help on the side to do your thing, to undead yourself. No, Christianity is life through death, power through weakness, victory through failure and defeat, all accessed by faith in Jesus Christ. The more involved answer is that the phrase born-again Christian is so loaded down with political overtones and positions on issues that are not core to the faith that I'm not inclined to connect these distorted pictures of Christianity with what the Bible lays out. I'm not inclined to connect those pictures with Grace Redeemer Church in particular. And so, no, I, I don't tend to use that term, but don't hear that as a denial or as a minimizing of the biblical truth of rebirth that is at the heart of salvation. There's so many other ways to talk about this biblical reality of regeneration, of being made alive with Christ that are true to God's revelation. So, how did God make us alive? Verse 5. The same way He raised us up, verse 6, and seated us in the heavenly realms, verse 6. Each of these verbs has the same prefix from the original Greek language of the New Testament that simply is translated together with. That little word with is an important word. It's a preposition. When you find a small screw under the couch or a little piece of plastic in the garage, the question is, what does this go with? (laughs) Because if it's in a, a drawer, it's a piece of junk. It's useless. But without that piece, inevitably, whatever it belongs to, whatever it goes with, it won't work well. It'll fall apart. You'll need duct tape, (laughs) Uh, something to, to serve its function, or you just have to buy a new thing, whatever it is. What does that go with? That's such a key question. When you find a, a lost three, third grader on the class trip with the colored shirt, the question is, uh, who are you here with? I'm with so-and-so high school or, or you know, middle school. Oh, oh wonderful. We, we can find who, who you uh, need to connect with, right? There's a relational context there that tells us everything we need to know. It's also the first thing you mention when you order a cheesesteak, right, Gary? With or without onions? Come on, Philadelphia friends, are you with me? This is, this is important enough. With or without onions? That, that, that tells you something that, uh, that, that is associated with that experience. But Paul takes withness to another level. These actions of God in verses 5 and 6 are single words in the original Greek. Made alive with, raised up with, seated us with. They reinforce what Paul had already said in chapter 1 where he used the phrase in Christ or in Him ten times in twelve verses. That's a lot of repetition, emphasis. He's trying to get a point across, and, and we saw that, those phrases again in just a few verses that we read already this morning. That's called union with Christ, and it's underneath and behind every part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's embedded in biblical Christianity. There, there is no understanding of what it means to be a Christian without an understanding 
union with Christ. Here's how the truth of union makes sense of what Paul's saying here. It's one thing to understand verse 5, made alive with Christ. There's rebirth, there's conversion. You you believe in Jesus and, and there's something new about you. But it's another thing to understand the two statements in verse 6. Why do I say that? Let me paraphrase. This is really the the intent here, and we'll see it in a parallel uh, set of verses written also by the Apostle Paul. You've been raised up, resurrected, and you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Did you hear the tense, as we would say in grammar? You've been raised up and you've been seated. And the natural reaction is, I have. (laughs) When did that happen? And then the implications. Why is my life still such a struggle? If I've been resurrected and if I've been seated with Christ already and yet my feet are still anchored to this earth by gravity. Paul says the same thing. Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, I have, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Remember the big picture of what Paul's saying to the Ephesians. This is who you were, dead, but God, this is who God has made you to be. There's this past, present, future dynamic going on here that we're going to unpack. Pastor Brian Chappell says, eternity has been compressed into a present reality in God's accounting. Eternity has been compressed into a present reality in God's accounting. How are these future experiences already present realities? You've been raised up. You've been seated with Christ. The answer is union with Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are united to Him by faith, and that means what has happened to Jesus has happened to you. What happened to Jesus? He died on the cross in payment for your sin, and so God, the Father, treats you as if you have also experienced the full payment for sin. It's done. It's taken care of. It is finished. What happened to Jesus? He rose from the dead, and what happened to Jesus happened to you. And so it is as if you have already been raised from the dead. You've been resurrected already, even though the resurrection actually waits for the last day when Jesus comes back. It's already reality in God's eyes. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. By the way, when a king sits, it is a demonstration of his authority. And somehow, we we don't have time to unpack that, this idea this morning. If you're a believer in Jesus, you also have been given authority. You've been delegated that authority from the king. There is no Christianity without union with Christ. 
And, and this is so countercultural, isn't it, in our individualistic society? This idea that someone else's success or failure defines your success or failure. But the reality is there are so many ordinary examples of this all around us. You know I'm a sports fan. Uh, pardon, forgive, forgive me again uh, if, you, if you can't track with this. But if, you, if you're playing basketball, you're united with the rest of your team. So your success is their success. Their success is your success. So if the game's tied in the last seconds and you miss that last free throw... Union with your team means you all suffer the consequences. And if one of your teammates rebounds and dribbles away from the basket rather than trying to score, you also suffer. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) On the other hand, hypothetically, if you made that shot and you won the game, your entire team, and we might even extend that, your entire city... And all the fans of your team all around the world, what do they scream and post online and retell to their grandchildren 40 years later? What do they say? We won the championship. And you want to say to your buddy, we? You were on the couch eating chicken wings. Where's the we? But the we is there because... The withness, the union is so strong that what happens to my team happens to me. Obviously, if you're a player on that team, but even if you're a rabid fan, we have won. It's another ordinary example. Hypothetically, if I gamble away all of our money and then get hit by a car, my debt becomes Cedar's debt because she's married to me. She's got to pay back everything, even if she loses the house. Why? Because we're united to each other in legal marriage, let alone spiritual marriage. When the one you're united to by faith is God and man, Jesus the King, that union has spiritual and eternal consequences. Here's union at the heart of the gospel, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way you make sense of that is union, withness. What is Paul saying there? Jesus was sinless. He had no sin. But God made him to be sin for us. Now, he didn't make Jesus a sinner. He didn't cause him to screw up on the cross. No, he legally applied the guilt of our sin upon Jesus. He treated Jesus legally as the judge, as if Jesus had been the one who committed all of the sin and punishment and wrath came down from heaven upon the Son. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him, union, withness, at the deepest level, we might become the righteousness of God. We might be treated as if we've already paid for sin, and now there's no double jeopardy. 
we are declared righteous in God's eyes. Innocent. Free from the penalty of sin and death. Union is everything. With makes salvation possible. With means that your biggest screw-ups, your deepest flaws, your greatest rebellious attitude, your secret addictions do not have the final word, will not define you if you are united to Christ by faith. Last thought, living in light of. We have to say that the death of the God-man on a cross outside of Jerusalem, an event that happened 2,000 years ago, is meaningless if it has no relevance and impact today extending into the future. Otherwise, it's just an interesting historical artifact, a chapter in your textbook, an asterisk on a timeline. It's, It's nothing more than that, and it's not worth giving our lives to. But the gospel, the good news, is the pronouncement that it absolutely does have impact and relevance today, extending into the future, even eternity. At the root of spiritual apathy, at the core of any struggle of faith, the constant battle in life for hope and joy and satisfaction and meaning, I'll argue, is the tendency to live in our past, to live in regrets, shame, and guilt, self-condemnation, or, or getting stuck in the cycle of other people's sin against you. We live in the past. But to stay there is a delusion of self-salvation or despair. If you've tried your best to make sense of all of this mess in your past and you can't, you can't escape it, you can't undo it, you can't heal from it, it's either self-salvation or despair when you give up. Nor is it the solution to obsess about your future. To say, I'm not going to live in my past, I'm going to live in my future, but that implies it's up to you to shape your future according to your wisdom and your strength and your skill. You and I cannot fix what's most wrong with us. That's the problem. The solution is the gospel that trusts in Christ's past and lives in light of Christ's future. Trusting in Christ's past, you start there by living in Christ. Withness is still in play here. Believing that His perfect life was lived in your place as your substitute. What happened to Him happened to you. And I closed with this verse last Sunday. I'll read it again. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's as if I died, and it's as if I am living now through Christ. I live in Christ's past. That's at the heart of salvation, but there's more. We also need to live in light of the future that Christ has secured for all who place their faith in Him. 
That's the picture Paul paints here in verses 6 and 7. God raised us up with Christ's resurrection and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is the rhythm of gospel life. Back and forth, trusting in past realities, Christ's life, Christ's perfect substitute death, Christ's resurrection, his victory over the grave, but then living in the now in light of future grace, what Christ has made a sure and certain reality, so much so that the apostle says, since you've been, since this has already happened to you, since this is as certain as done, and we need to hear God saying, as the judge of all the earth, as our perfect heavenly father, believer, my child, this is who you are already, freed, redeemed, forgiven, raised up, seated with Christ, now live in light of that glory. And there will be no end to that glory because verse 7 gives us a sense that God will forever continue to reveal His incomparable kindness to us and we will forever respond in praise. This is the gospel according to Ephesians. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, do not let us squirm out of, run away from, hide from, live in denial of the reality of sin, the deadness of transgression and sin. Holy Spirit, do not allow us to fall for the delusion that we just need a little help, that we need your strength, that we need something in our, our pocket just in case. So that when we screw up, when we falter, we can pull out this good luck charm, talisman. Holy Spirit, remind us we're dead. But God has made us alive with Christ. Let the glory of that good news impact us moment by moment, that we would be almost prone to despair every moment thinking about our sin, past, present, and future, but then quickly flee from despair to confident hope and joy as your child because you have made us new. You have raised us up with Christ, and you have seated us with him in the heavenly realms. So, Holy Spirit, help us to live in light of those truths that are already the case today as we trust in Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen.